Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's program at the Commonwealth Club of California, which is the nation's oldest and largest public affairs forum. Every year we present more than 450 forums on topics ranging across politics, culture, society and the economy. I'm Andrew Dudley, chair of the People in Nature Forum, which focuses on the relationship between people and nature, with a particular focus on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. It is a delight to see so many faces in the audience today, and I thank you for taking the time to attend this in-person event at the club. For those of you attending this program virtually, I extend a warm welcome and invite you to return to an in-person event as soon as possible. It is a distinct pleasure to introduce Catherine Blunt, who is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and author of California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. Her coverage of PG&E, a co- collaboration with two colleagues, was a finalist for the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting and earned a Gerald Loeb Award, the highest honour in business journalism. Now let's please give a warm welcome to Catherine Blunt. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you. I'm <laughs> pleased to be here. So before we start, uh, could we just uh, could we ask you a little bit about yourself, where you're from, uh, how you became a journalist and, and why you focused on uh, utilities? Sure. So I grew up in Maryland. I uh, wanted to be a journalist from a pretty young age. I found it early in high school and it, it seemed to make sense. It clicked in a way that other things didn't, didn't quite. And uh, I pursued it. I stayed with it. Um, I went to school in North Carolina, started my journalistic career in Texas, actually. Um, spent the most time at the Houston Chronicle and did a, a series of stories that ended up catching the attention of the Wall Street Journal uh, about four years ago now. They had a opening covering renewables and utilities. And, um, and that's how I got started at the Journal. That was on November 5th, 2018. And the campfire of 2018 happened in November on November 8th. So one of the biggest um, utility stories in the country was quickly unfolding, and I had a lot of learning to do very quickly. Sounds like perfect timing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunate timing in many respects, of course, but it was, uh, it was quite the way to start. Mm-hmm. For, for those that don't know the backstory, could you provide a be- brief history of PG&E from its founding, expansion, consolidation, and then up to the deregulation of the electrical market? Yeah, sure. So as we all know, PG&E has a very long and storied history. Its roots date back to the gold rush. It was, uh, you know, it was a company founded by electric pioneers, um, people who wanted to build vast systems of power lines, ultimately to serve San Francisco to support a booming population. It only ever had one real competitor. That was Great Western Power, founded around the turn of the 20th century to build a massive system of transmission lines to... um, uh, harnessing the hydropower, the Sierra foothills. Um, and it was actually Great Western that built the transmission line that failed and ignited the campfire. The piece of equipment that failed was truly 100 years old. But that's, um, you know, that's the later part of the story. The early part of the story is there was a you know, great deal of romanticism and big ideas, and these com- companies did a lot to electrify different parts of the state, support job growth, um, economic prosperity, and the company for much of the 20th century was very well respected. It um, was a company run by engineers, and um, they did a lot to build the infrastructure that supports the economy that we have today. That 
began to break down in the mid-90s. Um, there was a, you know, a push to deregulate the California electricity industry, and what that meant was that the utilities would no longer have the same role in producing electricity. They would still own the infrastructure needed to move it around, but their, most of their plants would instead be sold to companies that would compete to sell power in a new competitive market. And um, in the early 2000s, as many probably remember, that new market failed in a pretty catastrophic way, it resulted in the California energy crisis, and it resulted in, in ultimately in PG&E's first bankruptcy filing. Um, and that had two major consequences that we will, I'm sure, delve into quite deeply, but I think the most significant to talk about now is that the company became very determined to be a strong financial performer coming out of that first bankruptcy, and it resulted in a lot of cost pressures that ultimately had um, pretty significant uh, consequences. Thank you. So I understand it's from the 1990s we see P&G&E begin to get a reputation for starting fires. Uh, the San Bruno event was uh, the, the explosion and fire. Could you tell us what happened uh, in San Bruno? Yeah, so uh, the company merged from bankruptcy around 2004. Um, uh, quickly, um, a, a new CEO took the helm, and he was um, he had a strategy in which he wanted PG&E to regain the goodwill of shareholders. There was a lot of expense pressure so that the company could make the sorts of investments that investors wanted to see. And all of this kind of comes to a halt in 2010 because a gas transmission pipeline in San Bruno, south of San Francisco, exploded, destroyed a neighborhood, and killed eight people. Um, it resulted in, you know, first of all, of course, that was devastating uh, in terms of for that particular area and for the company, but it resulted in a very uh, detailed and protracted federal investigation of the company's gas transmission spending, and um, it uh, revealed that they hadn't been doing nearly enough to spend on um, inspections, maintenance, compromise the safety of the system. Okay. So just fast forwarding to 2018 and, and the campfire, which starts in Butte County in, in Northern California, what would you say are the, are the key factors and systemic failures that led to, to this event? Yeah. So um, I'm sure many in the room know this, but it's important to keep in mind that utilities make money in an unusual way. Uh, they make money by um, making large capital investments that improve the overall value of their system. They don't make money on day-to-day inspections um, and maintenance um, expenses. Um, and uh, so that means like you know, not only inspections, but replacing tiny components that don't uh, do much to, once again, boost the overall value of the system. So um, it was revealed after San Bruno that PG&E, in its effort to cut these operations and maintenance expenses, had been doing so too much on the gas transmission side to the point where it compromised safety. As it turned out after the campfire, it had been doing the same on the electric transmission side. Um, it had reduced uh, inspection thoroughness and frequency to the point where what they were doing was not sufficient to evaluate the integrity of the tiny pieces of hardware that we're talking about, including the hook that failed and ultimately broke. The company was not aware of the state of that, that um, piece of equipment because it hadn't taken nearly close enough look to understand it. Um, so there is, of course, the... the, the um, the challenging balancing act that utilities have to strike between uh, spending the right amount um, on operations and maintenance and still having enough to invest in capital to, to um, satisfy the shareholder base. Theoretically, companies can strike this balance. PG&E had been doing it poorly. There was an, there's an additional layer of complexity that also results from 
um, in some respects from the deregulation push. And that is that um, in, during the deregulation effort, PG&E and the state's other large utilities sold most of their power plants and would never again play the same role in building generating facilities. Around 2005, when the company emerges from bankruptcy, you see California begin to set really ambitious renewable energy targets, um, efforts to reduce carbon emissions by bringing online new wind and solar projects. And the utilities, including PG&E, were tasked with going out and contracting for this power. They were no longer building the plants, but rather buying it from those who would. And, of course, wind and solar are some of the cheapest forms of generation today, but they were not back then. And as a result of um, this, they were, they were you know, signing a lot of very expensive contracts that added another layer of expense pressure, leading to some of the pressures that ultimately resulted in the decision-making that led to the campfire. Okay. So in your book, you write about Bill Abrams, who struck me as being quite a hero. Uh, he was one of the victims and ultimately becomes a key figure in your book. Can you take us through what happened to him on the day of the campfire? Yeah, so Will actually was the victim of a series of really devastating 2017 fires that resulted when trees uh, contacted live wires in North Bay, a lot of destruction in the Napa-Sonoma area. And he was a victim of the Tubbs fire, which there's been a lot of debate as to whether PG&E's power lines ignited that fire or whether it was caused by privately, private equipment. But at the end of the day, you know, he felt like he was a, a, his whole family had been traumatized by this event, and he it was enough to really galvanize him to become involved in the many proceedings that resulted from these fires. Uh, there was proceedings in front of the CPUC, and and most significantly, as just a you know as an individual citizen with no strong representation, he became involved in the company's bankruptcy, and was really trying to champion the rights of the victims. And through his story and watching him try and appear at every hearing to raise very serious concerns that the victims had, it becomes clear that you know, bankruptcy was just really not a hospitable place for, for these concerns and making sure that victims of all the classes of claimants were treated with the most care. Because at the, at the end of the day, they were not. And um, it was really remarkable to see him approach this with such resolve until the very, very end. And he's still fighting, actually. We just got a couple of slides to show here, so um, let's just pull this up now. One second. No, that's it. That's the first slide. So, could you take us through what what this image is and what it represents? Mm-hmm. This image was captured uh, very shortly after the campfire ignited in 2018, and this fire, as we, as we said, um, it ignited when a very small hook on a very remote transmission line failed uh, a live wire, uh, uh, arc of electricity surged from this live wire, and sparks settled on the dry brush below. Within This is truly minutes after the fire ignited. This transmission tower is in a very remote part of Butte County in the Feather River Canyon. And uh, within an hour, even less than that, this fire was so completely out of control. And uh, the town of Paradise and some others in the vicinity were, were destroyed in a matter of hours. But this was taken from a by a PG&E worker, was it? I, I believe this was taken by a PG&E worker as he was driving to one of the powerhouses along the canyon. Okay. And then I understand then when the fire crews got, got up into the hills that they realized that they couldn't get to the fire. That's right. So within 15 minutes of receiving the call, um, the fire crew closest to the 
closest to the incident were standing across the canyon and just realized there was no way to get ahead of it. The tower in question was almost totally inaccessible by fire engine, and uh, they were across the river anyway. It was, um, and they quickly radioed for backup, but it was too late. So this is the uh, the pylon in, in question. I, I understand that this is part of the Caribou Palermo power line. Could you give us a bit of a backstory to this as to how PG acquired this infrastructure? Right. So this particular line, the Caribou Palermo, was in fact part of a system built by Great Western Power, the only competitor that PG ever had. Um, you know, hundred or so years ago, the two companies merged in 1930, which created the Northern California monopoly that we know today, and with it, PG&E acquired this infrastructure. Over the years, the company really lost uh, a lot of critical records associated with this infrastructure, had kind of lost track of the, of the backstory. Um, and so as we can see, you can see on the left side of this tower is an insulator string dangling from a wire. It was, it, it was that wire that ignited the fire. But we can zoom in there for you. Yeah, and so that's an, that's an example of the way it, it it looks when it's hanging intact in the tower. These string strings of insulator discs attached to the tower arms by virtue of these small hooks. And in this case, the hooks on this tower are about the width of a fist. Um, one of those hooks broke in half, dropped the insulator string, igniting the fire. And the hook that broke had you know so between. PG&E's educated guess, based on what it could find, even though it didn't have any records on the age of the hook that failed, and FBI analysis, it was revealed that this hook in question had been installed around 1919 or 1920 and had hung there ever since. Incredible. So on this, we've just zoomed in a little bit further here, but we can see that they've ultimately replaced the hanging plate because you can see on the, or maybe you could explain it, the where it's worn down in the hole. Right, right. So there's two issues that occur when these hooks and plates hang for many, many years. Um, essentially, the hook and the plate, they wear on each other and cause you know, the, the material to give out. You can see that in the hole of the hanger plate that's original, not the, not the bolted-on one. But you can also see how a hook hanging from a plate that weathers several decades' worth of windstorms, it, it wears out little by little. And ultimately, the hook that did break and ignited the campfire had worn almost completely through. The the groove that showed where it had broken was just a few millimeters across. And it's correct that these it was the only these uh power lines that were in exposed positions that suffered this failure. Is that correct? Uh there was other power lines in the vicinity that had the same failure modes and same some of the same uh damage. Okay. So just moving to the last slide here. We can see you could maybe describe this hook for us. Yeah, so this is a, an example of another hook that was found to have um, have some wear. It's not as significant as what was discovered on the um, you know the the tower that that failed, but um, you can see the raised B on this hook. It suggests that it was most likely manufactured by the Ohio Brass Company, which was a company that started in the 1800s, um, and it, it made some of the uh, materials for these early, early transmission lines. So it suggests it's the, this is probably an original hook on the line exhibiting similar wear. So with, with the lack of uh, paperwork that PG&E didn't, or didn't have for this, for this power line, were they aware of, this, of this, these points of failure prior to the event? They were not aware of a lot of the um, aware that was specifically on the hooks because these are, as you can see, 
relative to the you know to the glove in the hand these are very very small pieces of equipment and over the in the 20 years prior to the campfire pgne for a number of reasons had reduced the frequency of its inspections and the thoroughness in that it would often send people to walk beneath the line or to fly the line quickly by helicopter but neither mode of inspection proved sufficient to see the damage on these very very tiny um, pieces of hardware. So the company hadn't seen that in, in it was, uh, it, w- it was unaware. And so when this, this failure happened resulting in the campfire, it sent inspectors, inspectors out specifically to look at these hooks and other connectors. They found a number of hazards. Okay. So at this stage, the evidence is collected and sent to the FBI in, in Quantico and Virginia for analysis. Is this normal for the F- FBI to become involved? in an incident like this? Certainly. In a lot of fire investigations, what the investigators are looking at is um, you know, a tree coming into contact with a wire. What type of tree was it? Was it diseased? The fact that this involved this kind of equipment and equipment that was this old, it is uncommon to have the FBI try to get involved to determine where this came from, how long it had been there. You know, uh, The prosecutors who were investigating this disaster had requested original documents from the company showing where it came from, and the company could not produce them. So in 2019, then PG&E files for bankruptcy for, for what is the second time in, in the history right. of the company. What, what triggers this and, and what happens next? Between the 2017 fires and the 2018 fires, the company faced about $30 billion in liability costs. And the reason for that is in California, utilities are liable for property damage and other um, liabilities resulting from fires that their equipment causes, no matter whether they're negligent or not. And um, so it sought bankruptcy protection to sort through um, this, you know, this massive financial burden that it faced. And uh, it was an extremely complex restructuring. Um, and the way that it shook out had major implications for victims of the fires it ignited. Okay, so, so going back to, to Bill Abrams and the victims, what was their response through the back bankruptcy and the restructuring process? In settling the claims, the company had to um, reach agreements with three major classes of claimants. The first was governmental agencies uh, that had incurred fire suppression costs and other things. It reached that settlement first for a billion dollars in cash. The next class of claimants was um, insurance companies, because under this liability construct that we were talking about, insurance companies have the right to seek um, reimbursement for the claims that they pay fire victims. Um, and But these really weren't a pool of just insurance companies. Some of these companies sold their claims to hedge funds on the secondary market who bought them at a discount. And ultimately, these financial players succeeded in negotiating an $11 billion all cash settlement on which they stood to benefit by which because they had purchased these claims at a discount. So the company was out $12 billion in cash at this point, and it still hadn't reached a settlement with individual fire victims and businesses. And there were a lot of, there were a lot of very savvy and sophisticated financial players involved in this. Um, there was a few, you know, a few ways up for debate as to how victims claims should be settled, but ultimately the decision that the company and its shareholders reached was that because the company didn't have very much cash left, it funded for victims a trust 
with half cash and half shares in the company itself. Um, meaning that the, you know, the value of their ultimate compensation is tied to the, the future, uh, the company's future share price. And for a lot, this has been extremely frustrating and upsetting for a lot of fire victims for, for many obvious reasons. You mentioned the, the hedge funds. Was that an unforeseen outcome of the restructuring process? I think a lot of people were uh, surprised the extent to which some of these players became involved. I think in, in, you know, in this day and age, it's not uncommon at all to have hedge funds and other distressed investors um, play a large role in company restructuring. Um, but the consequences in this case, I think, were unforeseen and really quite unfortunate given the... Um, you know, given the stakes and given that this really affected a lot of people's lives in, in an extremely meaningful way. So moving forward to June 2020, this is when PG&E pleads guilty to 84 counts of manslaughter for the campfire. Uh, what impact does this have on the restructuring process and, and the victims' claims from that point? Yeah, so I think that it's, it was really remarkable. The company received approval to exit bankruptcy on the very same day that its CEO stood up and individually, plead, you know, on behalf of the company, pleaded guilty one by one to 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter for its role in the campfire. And the reason for that was the prosecutors who investigated the campfire determined, by virtue of looking at the state of the infrastructure in the Feather River Canyon, that the company um, had known that there was fire risk and that it, the way that it was managing its infrastructure exacerbated the fire risk and yet didn't do nearly enough to mitigate it. Uh, that amounted to reckless negligence. And so um, it didn't have a direct impact on the bankruptcy, but it happened in the same day. And it really, I mean, it's really served to underscore the circumstances and the challenges that the company faces and the, 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 and, yeah, the consequences. Okay, thank you. So uh, the PG&E is committed to undergrounding 10,000 miles of power lines. Uh, how are they going to prioritize which lines to, to bury underground? Yeah, it's it's interesting. So they have a new CEO. She came in in January of 2021. Six months later, a tree fell on a power line in the Feather River Canyon, not far from Paradise, that was, of course, destroyed in the campfire. And this fire grew to become the second largest in California history, the, the Dixie Fire. The CEO went up to Butte County as the fire was blazing, and she announced this new strategy, undergrounding 10,000 miles of distribution wire uh, she, it was a really risky announcement on her part because the company hadn't yet come up with a plan for how it was going to do this. Um, they hadn't decided which circuits should go underground. They're just now working through that process. They estimated it would cost $20 billion, but hadn't really had any conversation with the regulator as to how they were going to manage costs. And that's becoming a more relevant question, of course, given the inflationary environment that we're seeing and rates are very high. So they're, they're working through this in real time. But they've already made the, the you know, pledge to do it. So it, it's, it remains to be seen, and it's going to be quite interesting and challenging for a number of reasons. Is the, is the funding for them to pay for this, or will it ultimately be borne by the customer? Uh, co the cost will be, will be borne by the customer. It will be interesting to see whether there's any sort of mechanisms they can use to sort of help offset the cost over time. There's, there's ways to try to manage it, but um, once again, they're, they're still working through that. Okay, the title of your book, uh, The Fall of PG&E and What It Means for America's Power Grid, what does it mean for the power grid? We're beginning, so a, a part of the story that we haven't discussed is that you know, climate change is, is, plays a big factor here. Over the last 10 years or even more, 
PG&E service, the risk profile of PG&E service territory changed very quickly. California has been in a state of severe drought for a long time. Tens of millions of trees died, making the risk of a single spark so much higher. And across the country, you are beginning to see more severe weather events, weather patterns um, exacerbated by climate change, whether that be you know, whether that be drought, whether that be storms, cold fronts, fire risk, and so um, utilities everywhere are having to confront this new set of risks. There are a lot of utilities that assess risk and, and what's coming down the pike with sort of you know backward looking modeling, um, but. The past is not the same predictor of the future that it once was. And I think the PG&E's story shows that a company that has a history of mismanaging risk or mismanaging spending is going to be, you know, face even greater challenges in being able to confront these new risks. And the consequences are, are heightening for a number of reasons, whether that be fire risk or, you know, the, the risk of longer outages that, that jeopardize a lot of what we do on the day to day. Okay. And again, if any of you guys have any questions, please feel free to fill out the question card. And also for our online viewers, uh, submit questions via YouTube. Uh, one, the book was obviously a very sobering read. One part that did make me kind of laugh was that the incident where the CEO was leaving, heading back to Detroit, was it, or Michigan? And he turned around and he said that San Francisco is 49 square miles surrounded by reality. I don't know if that, by a show of hands, does that resonate? Is that a fair statement of San Francisco? Yep. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, so uh, so looking back, what would you say have been the, the greatest lessons learned for PG&E? For PG&E, well, you know, I, I really believe that the company has never been more aware of the risks throughout its system. It's been forced to do a lot in the last few years to confront them. And there are a lot of people who are working very hard to address them. But the other side you know, of the coin is that, that some of this risk is, is inherent throughout the system. And you can, I mean, bringing it to zero is next to, bring, bringing the risk to zero is next to impossible. And so there are going to be more incidents, I'm sure. Um, but the, the company is, is working very hard. At least it has the awareness that it lacked uh, leading up to a lot of these disasters. Okay, so we have one question here which relates to the undergrounding of the cables. How could that be impacted by earthquakes? Um, it's, a, it's a good question, and I think that they're, they're doing that as part of the studies as to where this is feasible, whether there's you know, additional safeguards that need to be implemented if they're going to be doing that um, in areas where there's seismic activity or seismic concerns. But um, the, the one good thing about having the cables underground is this, that they, they cannot start a fire. So that's, that's the benefit and the reason why they're pursuing this. Okay. In your uh, research for your book, were you able to speak directly with individuals from Butte County, such as DA Mike Ramsey, Deputy DA Mark Noel, or others? I spent quite a bit of time with them, um, and I'm really grateful for it. They, they uh, were really generous in telling me how they pursued their investigation, and I think it made for some of the richest storytelling in the book. Okay, so uh, what advice would you give to power utilities around the world and regulators uh, to stop a situation that's arisen in California? Right, so it's, it's, a, it's a tough question because it's easy to sit here and say, well, the risks are changing, you need to change your models, you need to expect the unexpected and um, do more to understand what's 
happening in a future that's you know seemingly changing day to day. You know, it's uh, uh, risk prediction is is really difficult to do. There's there's no question about that. But I think that it just necessitates some of the you know the brightest minds thinking about this, figuring out how to have a more forward looking approach to managing risk, whatever that means in their particular region, uh, given given what's happening and what's transpiring. What was PG&E spending their money on while neglecting maintenance? It's not the question. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things, I'm, I'm sure. Um, but the, uh, prim- I mean, so primarily, uh, the, this is not just a criticism of PG&E, even though the consequences were very great for PG&E. But um, you know, just large capital investments that probably didn't have a direct impact on the um, overall safety of the system, especially those lines in remote areas that were hard to get to and were being neglected from an inspection standpoint. From, from the interviews you did with uh, victims of the Butte fire, are there any particular stories that really kind of resonated with you that you could take us through? To kind of- yeah. Um, one that hit home, uh, another victim who became very involved in the bankruptcy, which is how I, I got to know him. Um, you know, he was on vacation in Hawaii, when his daughter called him to say, we are trying to herd our family out. We're trying to get your horses. This town is not going to exist in a matter of hours. And at that point, what can you do? He was completely paralyzed. You can't immediately fly out of Hawaii. And so he's just waiting to know what's happened to his family, what's happened to his property, what's happened to his livestock. And um, it was uh, his family made it out safely. But I mean, all of their property was destroyed. They lived like nomads for a couple of months because temporary housing was very, very difficult to come by. And ultimately, he became um, a champion of, of victims, um, you know, a voice arguing for victims' compensation in the bankruptcy. But the way it shook out, the committee that he was on just, I mean, he, he ultimately felt as though they had no power. And so he was trying to raise certain concerns that um, ultimately were ignored in a, in a pretty major way. Okay, so we've got some questions from the online audience. Uh, so one question from Preston John is, who insured PG&E? P- <laughs> uh, no, seriously, PG&E does have um, insurers, obviously, but um, it became clear in the 2017 and 2018 fires that the company was underinsured for the amount of risk that it faced, in part because I think P- PG&E itself underestimated the risk for a long time, and I think that the extent of it caught... Um, uh, everyone involved in that world by surprise to an extent. Okay, and Randy Frank says, congrats on a great book. Uh, what did you learn about PG&E's operations now and how it compares to earlier management under post-bankruptcy financial pressure disregarding ops and frontline employees? Right, right. Um, it seems to me, based on what I can tell, that there has been some level of culture shift um, certainly they understand the risk better, and it seems that they're trying to involve more uh, employees from different levels of the organization to figure out how to address them. So that's that seems significant. What uh, will state governments uh, be given opportunities for federal funding to cover these types of projects? Um, Maybe that refers to the undergrounding. Right. I think that it remains to be seen. There's certainly been some you know, significant legislation that's passed late last year as well as this year that is meant to um, improve various levels of our infrastructure, speed up clean energy projects. Uh, it's, it's, it's unclear how, how, like whether projects like this that are really safety projects at their core will be included, but it's, uh, it's not outside the realm of possibility. Okay. 
In your coverage of other U.S. utilities outside California, are they learning lessons or are they at uh, risk of similar catastrophes as the climate warms? Yeah, I think that that varies by utility. I think that there are some very forward-thinking utilities out there. Um, Con Ed serving New York is one. They've um, been among the first to have a climate initiative and to understand how climate risk was impacting their infrastructure and what they would need to do differently going forward. That strikes me as an example of a utility that utility that's more forward thinking. But for every utility in that in that basket, you probably have another that's maybe a little bit slower to come to these realizations. And so, it I think. Um, there will be a number of different approaches and we'll have to see how that bears out. Maria Moesh asks, uh, what were the capital investments and is there any conversation about compensation of PG&E execs? What were the capital investments? Yeah, what were the capital investments and is there any conversation about compensation of PG execs? Uh, um, The capital Projects, if we're talking about historically, it could be anything from, you know, building new power lines, um, making major improvements to substations. Um, but in term, there's always a conversation about how the executives are compensated. Uh, always a question. I mean, there have been some, you know, kind of what people consider to be quite egregious examples over time. For example, the CEO who was in charge during the San Bruno explosion retired with a $34 million uh severance package or retirement package. Um, there's, you know, continued conversation about how much Patty Poppy is, is compensated. Um, she maintains that that's appropriate given what she's tasked with. So, um, it, it is a, it is a definitely a source of debate. <laughs> so another, uh, online, uh, viewer is asking, have they clamped down on maintenance in regards to the small components like hooks? Yeah. So after the campfire, they went and inspected all of these little pieces of equipment in a, the span of a matter of months. They, um, they, it was a full scale inspection blitz. They found a lot of problems. You know, they say that they uh, made them all safe with this very apologetic statement. And they're trying to do a lot more by utilizing different types of technology that can help with inspections using drones, using LIDAR, using other things. And so um, on paper, they seem to be doing that. Uh, we always have to, you know, it's up to, you know, of course, the regulatory body and others tasked with oversight to make sure that that's being implemented appropriately. Okay, another question. Uh, how much was deregulation the problem? Should the state have taken over PG&E? Could that have been any worse? <laughs> Great question. So, yeah, yeah. So I, I think of, you know, deregulation in and of itself was not the problem. I think that there were there were issues resulting from deregulation. And, you know, the result of deregulation for PG&E was its first bankruptcy. It emerged very intent on pleasing Wall Street. There were poor decisions made as a result of that. And because they were no longer going to be building power plants, they had some, you know, expensive renewable energy contracts that added expense pressures later on. That's just sort of the practical challenges that resulted from deregulation for PG&E. Um, and the second part of the question was the state taking over. Um, yeah. Could that have been any worse? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's suffice it to say the state really doesn't want to do this. It would be an, a, an expensive battle with the company. Um, but there's real questions to be raised as to whether this would um, meaningfully solve the problems. You do remove the profit motive. Of course, funding all of this becomes a taxpayer issue at this mm-hmm. point. Um, and there's still the same liability problem so that it doesn't matter whether the utility is owned by the state or whether it's owned by shareholders, the company itself is still 
the entity is still liable for the damages resulting from fires that are likely inevitable. So then that, you know, the question of who pays for that becomes an even thornier question under public ownership. I have another question for you. So uh, Gavin Newsom was heavily involved in the, in the restructuring process. Uh, how do you think that helped the, the process in itself? So one thing that was very significant for PG&E and the state's other utilities that happened during its bankruptcy was the state established a wildfire fund to help these utilities manage these liability costs going forward. The catch for PG&E is that it had to get approval of its restructuring plan by June 30th of 2020. And if it didn't emerge by that time, it wouldn't have access to the wildfire fund. It would inevitably sink this company's share price and have significant financial implications for the company. Um, This was designed to benefit everybody by getting the company out of bankruptcy quickly. Um, But because of the complexity of some of the negotiations and the effort to hammer out these settlements very quickly, I think that's one of the reasons why the victim's settlement was reached um, in haste, regardless of how many victims felt about it. I've got a question here, but I can't read the writing. Do you want to have a go? I will. (laughs) How does PG&E compare with SDG and and, um, uh, the power company serving Los Angeles? <laughs> you write too fast. <laughs> so um, you know, it's it, the the question about LA. That's that's a great that's a great one, and I haven't looked so closely as to what they're doing from a fire prevention standpoint. But so SDG&E in two thousand seven, um, their uh, the company's power lines ignited the Witch Fire, major fire that um, destroyed uh, a lot of property and was um, killed a, a number of firefighters, and it really startled the company into action. Similar to the how the twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen fires startled PG&E into action. Uh, so SDG&E started trying to get ahead of the problem at that point as a result of this disaster, and on top of that. This disaster also moved the California Public Utilities Commission to try to do more to push the utilities to address wildfire threat. But in this whole process, which started in 2008, PG&E successfully argued that wildfires simply weren't a Northern California problem. They were strictly a Southern California problem. And so therefore, it shouldn't be required to prepare a formal fire mitigation plan. It didn't do so until much later. So SDG&E, as well as Southern California Edison, are each ahead of PG&E by virtue of the requirements that the regulator imposed and did not impose on PG&E. During the restructuring process, uh, I read that the when the board was uh, reformed or reconstituted, there was a lot of uh, financial people from New York, and Gavin Newsom was worried about that, that it was these mm-hmm. people didn't have a vested interest in California. Right. How do you think that turned out? And was he right to think that? Yeah, um, well, I, I think that there were... Um, by virtue of who held the company at that time, um, they put forward a slate of directors that a lot of them were, you know, they came from a distressed investment background. Um, and I mean, in their view, had the ability to help lead the company through such a complex restructuring. But yeah, I mean, these were, this was reflective of the short term interests of the investors, right? And there's been a lot of criticism in the way certain aspects of the bankruptcy shook out. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Okay. I have another question for you. Okay. <laughs> Munis don't seem to have the same infrastructure challenges like the investor-owned utilities. They also have much cheaper rates. Reasons why? Um, that's interesting. So I think, well, they are smaller. Um, they might not have the same sort of need to make you know, to spend a lot of money and or invest a lot of money in the system and the way an investor-owned utility 
would. Um, I haven't done a rate comparison, but that could be one of the that could be one of the reasons. Um, when when we're talking about you know L.A. and and Sacramento, I mean certainly they have fire risk to contend with, but it is also a much more contained system. So um, I appreciate this question, and it's going to be one that I'm going to think harder about after this event. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, one more here: Should the government be more responsible and take away the energy issues altogether? Say that one more time. Should the government be more responsible or take away the energy issues altogether? Uh, I think that this story really underscores the importance of um, the, the the responsibility that energy policymakers have, whether that's at the legislative level or the regulatory level, because it is the CPUC that's tasked with um, overseeing spending and system safety, not only of PG&E, but also the its counterparts in the South. And there is part of the story that really spells out the extent to which the regulator was t- really um, uh, challenged in its ability to do that because the safety division was very much understaffed and underfunded while other areas of the regulatory body had a lot more cachet for staffers. So I think that similar to the changes within PG&E, you're beginning to see changes within the regulator, but um, I mean, m- more needs to be done. Um, I don't think that there's much argument about that. When you were writing the book, what would you say were your greatest challenges? Yeah, I mean, this is um, it's a complex story. And at the end of the day, my, my greatest hope is that I did it justice. But um, distilling it, you know, distilling it into a narrative and a, and a story with a clear arc uh, is was challenging for a lot of different reasons. I had to re- read a lot of documents. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> were, were documents freely given by PG&E, or was a lot of it in discovery in the? Yeah, the the nice th- well, um, when you're writing about a utility company, there's I mean, there's reams of information available if you know where to look. They they make a lot of filings with the regulator. Of course, Le- PG&E has been embroiled in a number of legal challenges for the better part of two decades. And so there's a lot of court filings, regulatory filings. Um, there were some filings that were held privately that, you know, formerly, um, former employees showed to me. Um, but yeah, no, there was, there was no shortage of, no shortage of documents to look through. <laughs> you had a lot of bedtime reading. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this is a great question. So tree, tree trimming, which you've not really spoken about in right. detail. I mean, th- this is a huge challenge. Could you put that into context for us, like the scale of the oh, issue? Yeah. Yeah, so pg service territory covers 70,000 square miles. A lot of that is very heavily forested. And so one of the things that it is really needs to do on a consistent basis is make sure that the trees are the proper distance from the power lines. And, of course, this is a dynamic risk. Trees grow. They have to be you know, in a constant state of inspection and removal. Um, and, you know, I've, I've joked that this is like Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill. You know, you roll all the rock up and then it rolls back down. And so it's a, it's a, it's a perpetual expense. It will never be eliminated. Um, one of their arguments for the undergrounding is that it will reduce the need to be perpetually spending on this. And there's some truth in that, I'm sure. But um, that was the cause of many of the 2017 fires was when branches were in too close um, proximity to the wires. So they've been uh, doing their best to try to get a better handle on that you mentioned earlier about the the victims being offered uh shares in in pg&e where are they with their compensation now has that been finalized or are they still kind of fighting for- yeah no this is going to be um a very slow and frustrating process so the trust was supposed to be valued at 13.5 billion dollars when the company 
funded it in July of 2020. That was predicated on the idea that the shares would be worth $14 each. They were trading at about 10 when that happened, which means that the overall value of the compensation and the trust is only about $10 billion. The share price hasn't changed a whole lot since then. It's improved a little bit, but not much. Um, and the, you know, the, one of the huge challenges here is that the trust owns a roughly 21% stake in the company. So the trust cannot liquidate all these shares all at once because it would sink the company's share price. So not only that, but the trust has had issues working through various um, tax challenges and other things that have made it so that it's been uh, slow to make disbursements. Things have picked up a little bit over the last year, but for much of the first year of the trust existence, it distributed almost nothing. So um, this is going to be a multi-year process, and it's pretty much understood that the victims will not be made whole as a result of a lot of these challenges. Wow. This question here, I'll have a go at reading it. Do you take the uh, operation improvement will dramatically increase the rate base, uh, veg management? Uh, who wrote this question? Right. Well, I was curious <laughs> if the wedge measurements would uh, dramatically increase the rate base, and if that's not something affordable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, the wedge management actually is treated as an expense. Um, so, I mean, regardless, it's, so it doesn't really increase the rate base, but it is passed through to, to customers. So there's, there is that. Um, the, of course, the big undergrounding plan that they are proposing would be treated as capital investment, and that would be something that would be added to the rate base. So they would earn not only – they would not only recoup that through customers, but also the authorized rate of return. And so one of the huge challenges this company is going to have in executing that plan is, is cost management. Rates are already very high as a result of wildfire mitigation, spending, investments, uh, grid hardening to prepare for EVs. And, um, of course, this inflationary environment in which it costs a lot more to produce power as natural gas prices go up. So uh, this is going to be a very big challenge, big practical reality to contend with. Any more questions? We've got about 10 minutes left. If we've got a microphone to hand out, if anyone wants to ask one. Okay. Are you working on the sequel? (laughs) (laughs) There will always be a sequel to write. I know that. Uh, can you speak to the impact that the solar installations on individual homes might have overall to the grid? Is there a projection in terms of making it easier on PG&E or burdening them? Yeah. Yeah. So this is definitely a, a big subject of debate in California right now as the utilities push for a different compensation structure for those who have rooftop solar. Their argument is that um, the way that the construct is now may leave those customers without solar panels paying more into the system this is a very complicated policy area, and you know there might be a little bit of truth to their argument, but there's also it's much more complicated than than that. The argument for having more um, rooftop solar panels, in addition to being beneficial to the homeowner, is that it could ultimately reduce the need for some of this big centralized infrastructure. Maybe we don't need as many transmission lines, as many big centralized um, power plants, and so. As with most things, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle as to what we'll ultimately need. But, um, you know, more distributed generation has the potential to alleviate some of those challenges that come with transporting power over long distances. What is uh, the extension of the nuclear power plant for another five years mean for California residents? Um, Well... The thing to 
about the nuclear industry is that, I mean, it is very safe. I completely understand concerns the residents have, not just those who are close to it, but because, of course, catastrophic failure of this plant would be very significant for this entire region. I will say it, it has a, a, a decent operating record. I mean, it's, it hasn't had any major catastrophic failure since it has been around. Um, so I think certainly PG&E, as well as the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, understand the need to operate this plant safely, especially given its you know proximity to, to seismic faults and, and everything like that. Um, you know, it's interesting to see, for example, Senator John Laird of St. Louis Obispo to you know voting in favor of it despite some of his concerns after having conversations. Uh, I think that it's very reasonable to say that it will be able to operate safely for a, a little while longer to help alleviate some of the supply concerns that we're seeing. But that's not to underplay or to you know to downplay, I should say, um, the concerns of those who would ultimately like to see it retired as soon as possible. Okay, so we have some more questions coming in from uh, from YouTube. Randy Frank, uh, how far into the future do you think public safety power shutoffs are sustainably are sustainable economically and politically? Uh, how about ratepayer toleration of increasing increases for costs of undergrounding? Yeah, those are both excellent questions. So um, there's not a whole lot of headroom right now as it relates to rates. Um, there's a certain you know, number of customers who really can't bear that much more right now, which is one of the reasons why the undergrounding is going to be a very big challenge. Public safety power shutoffs. Um, part of the argument for the undergrounding, they say, is it will it will reduce the need for the for the PSPS events. Um, but they are. It is not a sustainable long term solution. When the company employed this strategy at scale in 2019, um, millions of people without power for several days. The CEO at the time estimated that it would be a decade before the company could reasonably reduce the frequency of the shutoffs. Um, it has certainly made progress in reducing the scope, but it, it hasn't necessarily reduced the frequency, and it's also been employing other technology that make for more frequent outages. It isn't sustainable because in doing this, the company's not providing electricity safely and reliably at the same time, which is what it's you know, it's supposed to do and what the collective expectation has been for a very long time. So um, I don't think that those are going away anytime soon. Um, but I think that the company has probably made more progress than it expected in being able to at least reduce the scope. Ken Yee asks, uh, what are your thoughts on Judge Alsop's statement about PG&E emerging from probation? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Judge Alsop is one of the most interesting um, judicial characters I've ever come across. He's uh, just, you know, he, he says exactly what's on his mind. And he felt as though, so what he said was that, um, if I remember correctly, that PG&E emerged from probation, a continuing menace to the state of California, as I believe what he said. Um, what he meant by that was he was tasked with overseeing the company's criminal probation resulting from the San Bruno explosion. And he felt ultimately that the probationary period had very little impact on the company's overall ability to deliver its energy products safely. And in this mostly electricity, he became very involved in that. And so, um, you know, that's, uh, it's certainly disheartening. I mean, he, he really tried a lot of different means of, um, pushing for greater compliance and ultimately he felt as though that he failed. So I guess, uh, in kind of closing, if there's, if there's any more questions, I'll wait there. We got one here. I had one. Um, between 2010 and 2018, the two incidents, 
um, the regulator was the same. What does it speak about the regulatory oversight on PG&E? Are they equipped? Are they short-staffed? Or do they lack competency to, to oversee such a, a, such utility? Because mm. both the underlying problems for both the incidents were, you know, lack of maintenance, lack of missing records, etc. In the eight years um, between the two incidents, uh, do you think they didn't have enough oversight over the uh, utility? Right, right. So after the San Bruno explosion, the National Transportation Safety Board did a very thorough investigation into what happened. And part of its findings was that the regulator was very ill-equipped and had done poorly to oversee the safety of the gas system. Um, there was a lot of debate within the regulator after this disaster as to what was the, you know, what was, how do you improve the safety oversight? What do you do um, to make it so that, um, yeah, you have visibility into these very complex systems? But nevertheless, I mean, for the years after that, the safety division did remain understaffed. It did remain underfunded. And while you're beginning to see that change, I think it's really only sort of changed truly in earnest more recently after the fires. And so it's been a slow process. And there's, um, there is the, the, the regulator bears culpability in all of this as well, if you're looking at it historically. Okay. Just briefly, how would you compare PG&E to what's going on with the energy in Texas? <laughs> Yeah, I used to live in Texas. I lived through the freeze. That was uh, a lot of fun. Um, so, <laughs> uh, you know, um, it kind of, uh, it's a, it's a definitely a different, both a different energy market as well as a, a certainly a different political landscape down there, right? And so the the causes of some of the um, issues resulting in the freeze were were different, but. You know, it's it's kind of hard to succinctly draw comparisons, but what I will say is, like, it really underscores the need to invest in the system to be able to operate in conditions that you didn't think you'd have to operate in, right? And so, um, and the con and also underscores the consequences. More than 200 people died in Texas during the freeze, and so, uh, yeah, it was. Um, you know, jokes aside, it was really a, a really severe disaster. So I have I have two qu I have one more question, and so uh. I remember growing up in back in England when Chernobyl melted yeah. down. I remember being a young child and we were, you know, waiting to hear from, from the government on television whether we could go to school that day because they were worried that the, you know, nuclear cloud was going to come across the UK. Thankfully it didn't. But when you look at, uh, you know, that technology was developed in the 1950s, nuclear technology has advanced significantly. So Bill Gates and Terror Power. Right. Uh, what is your thoughts on that? I mean, are we moving into a safe space with or more safe space with right. technology. Right, of course, like, you know, Chernobyl was a very particular reactor design that is not in use and it was not in use in the United States. Um, and, you know, after Three Mile Island, uh, the U.S. nuclear industry really um, attempted to have a, a very, you know, similar safe operating record, like, you know, similar to the airline industry, mm -hmm. right? So there's, there's a lot of very stringent oversight. Um, we're talking about, you know, TerraPower. I think you're talking about smaller reactors, right, that could be um, used to provide round-the-clock power to augment the shift to more renewable energy sources. Um, you know, it remains to be seen whether that has much traction. I will say, in terms of, like, larger reactors, 
just from a practical standpoint, the United States have like almost never been able to build one on time and on budget. I mean, these have been such expensive generators. Whether that can be done more effectively at a small scale and done so safely will be interesting to see. <laughs> uh, but it's still pretty pretty early days to make a prediction on that one. So we hear there might be a sequel in the offing. Uh, what's next for Catherine? Uh, I, need, I need a little time, but there's been, uh, I've had several requests for a book on the Texas freeze. So. Okay. <laughs> Maybe. And anything else that you're going to be working on in the future? Um, you know, I, I think that, I, you know, I'll, I'll continue, of course, to write for the Wall Street Journal. And there's never been really a better time to be writing about these issues because they're just becoming more relevant and people are beginning to think about them in a way I think that uh, collectively we haven't historically so thank you all for coming out and talking about it yeah and thank you Catherine and uh one more question we've got time for if there's if there's anyone maybe one right here yeah okay. uh to what extent is the fact that P- pg e is publicly traded drives their profit motive if they were private do you think they would spend more money on maintenance yeah that's a good question um so I think even still, if it was a private company, there still would be, if you're talking just not being publicly traded, you'd be talking about private, there's still a profit, there would still be a profit motive, right? Um, but I think that, so the only way to really eliminate the profit motive is through um, some other ownership model, like a, a public ownership, or the other alternative is um, a customer-owned cooperative. You see that more in the rural areas. Uh, in, so if we're talking about an investor-owned utility, there's inherent tension, between sort of um, investments that will inure to shareholder benefit and expenses that may benefit the public good but don't do much for the other side of the equation. So I think theoretically companies can strike this balance. PG&E has not, did not do so historically, and it just speaks to the importance of um, you know, regulatory oversight and um, making sure that this you know, expense drift doesn't really come at the expense of system safety as it did with PG&E. It, it, it's a very significant factor. One more question, please. Okay. <laughs> Personal energy usage, what advice would you give us? Personal energy usage? On an individual basis. Flex alert. We all <laughs> shut off the lights. Um, no, uh, you know, I think that um, it, we're moving into an environment in which we are probably going to be using more electricity, especially if you're adding an electric vehicle to your home, trying to phase out natural gas, you know, have an electric heat pump or an electric stove. And so um, there's all kinds of things that can improve energy efficiency, but there's also, you know, a lot of, or there's a lot of ways to, to better communicate with the grid to make sure that you are using electricity at the optimum times for the best price, you know, being able to give some of that back during periods of, of scarcity. So um, it's a good time to kind of begin to understand more of these options and, and how that can fit into the, the clean energy future that we're moving towards. Okay. So Catherine's going to be outside to sign some books. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So you can catch her in a minute. But I wanted to thank you, Catherine, for writing an incredible book that's thank you. cast the spotlight on, on what is a major issue, um, especially as we move forward. And thank you for also helping us to maintain our tradition here at the Commonwealth Club of hosting and lightning conversation for the last 119 years. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. The Commonwealth Club appears multiple <laughs> times in the book over the course of the whole session. <laughs> Excellent. Thank so you. a round of applause for Catherine Dewey. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. 
If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.